Hello and welcome to episode 2006 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. I realized that because we didn't get a chance to podcast early this week, we neglected to discuss something very serious and important, which is Akil Badu getting hit in the beans by... <sighs> baseball thrown to second base just uh graphically just uh an impact on a a cupless groin a cup free groin as we soon discovered based on his reaction if anyone didn't see this a kilpatu of the tigers attempted to steal second base and the throw came in and the throw just nailed him directly in the beads. I, I feel like I need to credit Grant Brisby for that phrasing. I think <laughs> I don't know if he coined in the beans when it comes to baseball plunkings in the in the penile area, but <laughs> he's definitely popularized the usage. I okay, so like um look, I don't wanna um be too specific. Kill Badu does not owe me or you or anyone an explanation of exactly where but like you know the does, does grant mean in the beans to to encompass <laughs> the whole package because right you don't know what what is you know like it might maybe it's yeah you, you don't know which way it's hanging the, yeah yeah thank you for that that's um that's a nice a nice euphemism sure for what i was about to say but yeah it seemed um like uh, initially, I was like, "Oh, it just took a, a funky, a funky hop, a weird carom, bad mm-hmm. jump." And then you see it up close, and you're like, "Oh no, he he got hit in the beans, you know, yes. um, <laughs> right, just right in them." There. Yeah, I guess we could say junk, but but junk baller has a different meaning in baseball. So yeah. really, I think the thing that I find most entertaining about cases when this happens. And there's always a, a strange sort of tension between pity and kind and of amusement. pointing and laughing, yeah. right? It's always like, oh, all the guys know what he feels like. You know, there's always some kind of comment like that. And yeah. if you have experienced something similar, then you do feel almost a sympathetic pain. And yet there is still, I mean, I guess it's uh, just that comedy comes from tragedy <laughs> oftentimes, yeah, right? So yeah. I mean, this is why we like pratfalls. This is uh, why that makes us laugh, right? And this, it's a particularly painful and, and specific sort of mishap yeah. that really you feel for the guy. And yet when I search baseball players getting hit in groin on YouTube, as I just did, the Badoo video, despite its recency, is only the ninth result below such classics as baseball nutshots, parentheses, hit in the groin, MLB compilation, 5.5. 4 million views. This is viral content. Now, it, it sometimes it can cross over into territory when you get some sort of testicular torsion situation. When it becomes like a Mitch Hanniger level incident, then I think it ceases to be funny. Yeah, anytime <laughs> the word rupture might be involved. Yes. No right. longer amusing. Right, which is always a, a risk that you can't really assess in the moment. That's that's something you find out about or hopefully don't find out about later. That's a possibility 
in any yeah. in any case like this. But but generally, you walk it off, or you just sit there for a while, as he did, until the pain passes. But one of the things that is, I think, amusing about these incidents is how long it often takes the broadcasters to notice what happened, right? right because yeah. Yeah. you you can see the replay and you can see it in slow motion. They're watching it in real time. Usually, they're probably not looking at the monitor in the moment, and then they're busy calling the play. And so if you watch the replays of the Akil Badu, can we call it a beating? I guess a beating is also something different. Yeah, but. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't imagine that Mike Zanino was intending for Akil Badu to no. maybe contemplate his future ability to have children later. I, he doesn't seem Not like at all. A, a mean guy. If he did, it was impressive accuracy, but no, yeah. I'm sure he didn't. But <laughs> really, it's, it's a shame that, that beaning and junk ball is, is just already in use. Yeah. <laughs> That's where we got to go with this. But really, if you watch it, I saw multiple broadcast commentary on this on various clips on YouTube and Twitter, and it just it doesn't dawn on the broadcast. Broadcasters are like, he's slow to get up. The it's oh, it must be an ankle, a knee, a leg. <laughs> and then gradually, like they see several replays, and then you finally, and they're like, oh, it hit him. And rarely do they acknowledge exactly what happened. You know, the baseball broadcaster almost never is just going to say, oh, he got hit in the beans. You know, Grant probably would if he were on the air. But the baseball broadcasters, they will be super vague and circumspect and they'll just yeah, be yeah. like, oh, you you never like to see that or that never feels good or <laughs> he, he got hit without specifying exactly, oh, he's uh, really slow to get up. Yeah, that that'll, that those are tough, you know? But they never specify exactly what happens, which I guess they don't necessarily need to because uh, almost all the people who are watching along at home can intuit it for themselves. But there's always a delay between the actual injury and them realizing where it hit and why the reaction is that way. And then there's also the period of trying to assess how much it hurt and whether there was a cup present, right? Like right. It's, there's kind of a, a cup check that goes on in each of our minds as we watch these replays, in my mind at least, because there's the initial reaction, even if you're wearing a cup, there's going to be some discomfort in that situation, especially if you got hit by a pitch in that region, right? But you can kind of tell the difference between, oh, I can walk this off in a minute because there was a cup and there was not a cup. And so this is going to, it's going to be a while <laughs> before I can move again. And I think it was pretty clear from the replays that there was no cup present in the Akil Badu situation. And Tigers media did their jobs, uh, took their responsibilities seriously and did question Akil Badu on the whereabouts of his cup. And there wasn't one. <laughs> and uh, on May 8th, there was a tweet from Jason Beck, who covers the Tigers for MLB.com. Akil Badu on his cut stealing. It hit me in an uncomfortable spot. Just needed so, to catch my breath a little bit. So <laughs> yeah. So again, very, very, so Victorian, you know, like we, we can't specify exactly what, what happened here. I'd never experienced something like that before, but it makes me think twice about wearing a cup now. <laughs> that was May 8th. Now, on May 9th, the next day, Chris McCoskey, who covers the Tigers for the Detroit News, 
yes, Akil Badu plans on wearing a cup in games from now on, hashtag journalism. So I guess he thought twice, <laughs> he thought about it overnight and decided, yeah, I'm going to wear a cup from now on. It just took one time to decide that. It's funny because like upon closer inspection, you look at it and think, clearly not wearing a cup based on the reaction. But the force of the carom made me yeah. initially assume that he was wearing one and that it had hit him square in the cup. And I <laughs> right. would I would imagine um, that, I don't know, but my imagination tells me that that would also be deeply unpleasant, right? Like you're being yeah. protected from the worst of the impact, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I get that part. But I would imagine that the ricochet back um, would would still be a, a, a big ouch, you know, yeah. a big yikes if you're yeah. um if you're possessed of beans, you know, if <laughs> yes. you're in if you're right. a person possessed of beans. So mm-hmm. yeah, you all are so vulnerable down there. <laughs> yeah. You know, just, you're just just all hanging out there. You're really quite yeah. <laughs> vulnerable. It's you know, it's not um it's not like it, it doesn't hurt to get like I imagine a, a baseball to the. I'm not gonna offer a word. Uh-huh. I'm not offering one. I refuse. Okay. Okay. I'm refusing, but uh-huh. it wouldn't. That would. That would also hurt because it's a. It's a. It's a baseball to right. soft parts. We but to, um, to, what does the Grant Brisby nope. of of nope. softball say? I wonder when that occurs. That. There, there must be a term, a euphemism for that as well. But probably. But either way, it, either it's going to leave a mark. Yes, yeah. but but it will leave a, a, a greater psychic imprint. I think psychic. in the cupless situation. Yeah, totally, totally. And cups can be uncomfortable. I, yeah. I know from personal experience, my brief baseball career, I wore a cup and I didn't like it, <laughs> but I preferred it to the alternative, I think. And there are people who are shocked to learn that any Major League Baseball player would ever be caught cupless. And y- yes, quite a few of them go about their business routinely, just cup-free. I think it, it correlates to position, obviously. Sure, so totally. a lot of outfielders do not wear cups, a Kilpadu, an outfielder. So it's not even unusual, really, that he wasn't wearing one. Right. But even outfielders who are less likely to get nailed by a line drive or or take a short hopper in right. that area, right, they still have to hit. And there's right. still that risk. It's it's rare that you can't get out of the way enough. There are some famous again, I, I want to call them bloopers, but it it's almost like yeah. I mean, you know, you swing and you corkscrew and you get hit in the beans and you kind of feel embarrassed about that. And your first impulse is often perhaps to protect that area and to take the ball. If you have to get hit by it, then you want to get hit on the opposite side of your body where there's quite a bit more padding, right? But there are cases where you can't necessarily get out of the way. So you would think that just in case, just in an abundance of caution, as everyone has said about everything since COVID started, that it would be worth wearing it. And obviously, uh, Kilpadu has reached that same conclusion. So it, sometimes it just it takes you learning a very painful lesson to do that. But gosh, if I were a ball player, I feel like just watching those, again, can't call them highlights, lowlights, I don't know what to call them, but those mishaps, those misadventures, just seeing them and 
feeling the sort of sympathetic second-degree pain would probably make me wear one, even if, for the most part, I never actually needed it. I feel like I'm a, I'm a cautious person. I think that I would rather experience small amounts of discomfort jostling the cup around than yeah. potential big discomfort of rupture. You know, right. that's just not a word you should be familiar with. Like you shouldn't, you know, someone shouldn't say the word rupture and then you do the like shiver of the of the well-informed, of the lived experience, right? You don't want the you don't want the rupture lived experience, I think. No. I think you mm-hmm. want to avoid that. I'm glad mm-hmm. I'm glad Akil did cuz Right. Man, bad bad enough to get thrown out, but to in such a oof Man. Yeah. Right. That's the thing. Insult to injury, right? I mean, out to injury. If you were going to get hit there, at least you'd think that it would be deflected away so that you'd be safe, right? Right. Yeah. And so I guess it's not the worst part of this. It's just an additional bad part of this is that the carom off of his private parts went directly into the glove of Andres Menace. Somehow private parts is worse. I don't know. I can't articulate why, but I'm here to confidently state that that is worse. In cases like like, this, they become very public parts. We are discussing them. No, they aren't public parts. They are still (laughs) shielded from us, Ben. What is wrong with you? A a thin layer shields them from from our eyes, but not from our conversation. But but most... (laughs) Most clothes are but thin layers, Ben. That is you know? true. But but we are contemplating the parts currently. But I, wait, I want to be very I mean, clear that I am <laughs> contemplating with no specificity his parts. I just yes. want that I I acknowledge their existence. Yeah. <laughs> but um really only because of reporting that has right. forced me to. Of course, you know? yes. Yeah. But it was a, a very unfortunate impact in many ways. I mean, it was a good throw. It's roughly where you want the throw to be. Like, you, you, if, yeah. if it's going to be offline at all, like, you, you want it to be to that side of the bag. And just so that the glove of the fielder who's covering is just kind of drawn into the body of the sliding runner. And you don't even really have to apply a tag because right. your glove's already there, but not yeah. – there specifically, exactly there, there, there. precisely, but yeah. <laughs> around there. Around <laughs> so, there. Yeah. I, I wonder if anyone apologized to Padu. Does Zanino or, or Jimenez uh, say sorry about that? Or oh, I bet. I bet. Yeah. I bet I, that. Um... I hope so. I would. It's just a courtesy, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. When, a, when a pitcher hits a batter, sometimes they're all stoic. And even if they clearly didn't mean to, yeah. they don't. They don't want to, like, show any sign of, of human emotion, you know? Right. They, they don't want to concede that they feel bad for the person or that they feel bad about the pitch. Or perhaps they want to even preserve the possibility that it was intentional for some kind of intimidation value. I always appreciate it when the pitcher just shows, like, oh, I didn't mean to do that. You know? Oh, yeah. And just, like, I feel bad about that. You know, feel puts terrible, their hand yeah. up or, or cringes or, or gestures. I yeah. like that, you know? Just, like, you just hit a guy with a baseball really hard yeah. you know like it may not have been intentional and sure it's it's part of the game and everyone understands the risks but yeah. still like common courtesy i mean if you totally. bump into someone on the street you, you say excuse me yeah. right <laughs> you know if you hit someone with a fastball then say excuse me for that too <laughs> sorry yeah. that one got away a little bit you know i guess the only exception would be if, if the guy like really leaned into it you know and made no effort to get out of the way but that's clearly not the case here with no. uh, the unfortunate Akil Badu. Yeah, it's um it's just uh 
you know, a record scratch moment. Like mm-hmm. you're probably wondering how I got here. <laughs> yeah. Now what we'll have to see, I think, is is whether there's any difference in his stat cast stats in the outfield. Now that we we can clearly delineate coupless and and cupped Akil Padu. Because is it is it merely discomfort or is there some adverse effect on your performance? I mean, do you get the same jump? Do you get the same burst? Do you have the same sprint speed and root efficiency when you're wearing a cup as when you're not? I guess we're about to find out. We're about to get some some hard data on that question. Um, hard data. Um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Sorry. You're are you a, you're a, a root not route guy? I am. Yeah. Mm. I'm learning. I'm learning a lot today about all kinds of people. You know, um, root, not route. Route. Yeah, I think so. I accept either. I have no strong feelings or. You're not. Or, uh, you're not an evangelist for root. Absolutely not. No. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I guess we've <laughs> exhausted my Akil Badu cup content, but I mean, didn't think it should go unremarked upon, and now yeah. it has gone extensively remarked upon. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the the likely answer, and of course that makes it boring, is that like he's a professional athlete and yeah. he'll be fine. Um, <laughs> but I think that it is an interesting, you know, it's like, uh, you know, um, you know what I've often wondered about, Ben? This is mm. sort of tangential, but, you know, um, how many pairs of, sh- of uh, spikes do you think baseball players go through in a season? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. We yeah, we've we've answered emails about like yeah. how many pairs of pants, pants. and yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How many spikes? I I I couldn't tell you. I don't know. But, uh, but you don't three. have to you don't have to wear in pants really, you know? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. um they they generally come pre pre-worn in. I mean not pre-worn necessarily, but pre-worn in. You know that they, they probably don't rub, but like shoes mm-hmm. rub. So um yes. how, like what do they do with that? Because right. you know you you don't yeah. want to get blisters because of yeah new you shoes. wouldn't want to break a new one if like you use the same glove until it's falling apart basically because right. you don't want to have to <laughs> break in a new one but right. shoes they get a lot of wear and tear obviously depending right. on the player I think that um, there are some times where it is really obvious that I did not play baseball. And I think this is probably one of those times. <laughs> but I am genuinely curious. I think about this. It's like you sometimes hear guys talk about it in spring training. They're like, oh, I'm breaking in nucleus. Like, do you break them all in mm-hmm. in that time? Do you have like a reserve of broken mm-hmm. in ones? Yeah. Um, and then like, what if you need new, what if you need new shoes? Um, you know, what happens then? Do you get blisters? Does it affect your day? Like I, Mm -hmm. you know, even shoes that, you know, are going to be comfortable eventually because they're like ergo shoes. Like, you know, the first couple weeks you're wearing new Birkenstocks, you get Mm -hmm. all kinds of rubbing and then Mm -hmm. you get the little blisters and then you have to precisely place your band-aids, but you want to keep wearing them because you know that they won't get comfortable until they're broken in. And then mm-hmm. what do you do, Ben, you yeah. know? And then and then you're like, do I have to buy the same ergonomic shoes that my mom wears? And mm. then and then you realize one day at a family event, yeah, I have. And then mm-hmm. you contemplate your mortality. Like is it like that? <laughs> Could be. Yeah. I, I wear shockingly few shoes, few pairs of shoes. I I wear shoes about as much as anyone else, but I was but like, different oh, no, pairs. Are we going to have to have a, a, a different <laughs> no. conversation about are you a, a, no, a I'm not, grounding? I'm not. No, no, I'm not. <laughs> Very rarely do do my souls touch the earth, but 
I rarely acquire new shoes. This is probably more Patreon pod content yeah, than main can, feed content. But we can move on. I, <laughs> I will I'm, go years without changing shoes, but I'm also not stealing bases. So right, yeah. It's just you know, it's an important piece of equipment. It's not just a a, a fashion accessory. They need to have reliable shoes. Yeah. Um, and ones that don't rub. So anyway, it seems like we, being a major gotta, leaguer is really hard. We got to talk to a clubhouse attendant at some point. It seems like a lot of the questions that we've had over the years yeah. could probably best be answered by one yeah. of those. Yeah, I'm sure we have listeners who are like, "Are you guys journalists or something? Can you <laughs> just go find the answer to this question?" <laughs> yep. So elsewhere in the AL Central, in non-groin related news, I did just want to celebrate the fact that Joey Gallo appears to be back at yeah, least for man. now. I love that. I yeah. always uh, have enjoyed Joey Gallo when things are going well, and mm-hmm. then. Joey Gallo just brought me nothing but sadness and sympathy yeah. over the past year plus. Worried, worried about him, really. Very much like, so. In kind of an active for his person sort of way, not in yes. a baseball player way. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. now he seems to have gotten his swagger back, gotten his swing back, gotten his mojo back. He is hitting thus far, at least, more or less like Pete Gallo again. Mm-hmm. And. I always think of him now in contrast to, or at least in comparison to, Andrew Benintendi. Those two mm. players now are, are linked forever in my mind since last year, because coming into last season, I don't know that anyone would have said, I would rather have Andrew Benintendi than Joey Gallo, or if they were free agents, I would give a bigger contract to Andrew mm. Benintendi than Joey Gallo. I don't think that would have been a common opinion, even though... There was that late season swoon for Gallo in 2021 after he got to the Yankees. That was still a small enough sample, and he was so good with the Rangers that you figured he'd bounce back. And his production dwarfed that of Benintendi. From 2020 to 2021, Gallo, even with the late season slump in 2021, was worth 5.2 Fangraphs were, and Benintendi was 1.4. Benintendi seemed to have sort of stagnated as a a player, failed to fulfill his potential. And then their trajectories just went in completely different directions last year, right? To the point that they were exchanged for each other, essentially. That Gallo's struggles continued and intensified with the Yankees, and it became clear that there was a psychological aspect to it as well. That I don't know whether it was a cause or a result, but it was clearly hampering his performance and his well-being as a Yankee. And so he was replaced by Ben Benintendi. He went to the Dodgers and he did only slightly better than he had done with the Yankees. Meanwhile, Benintendi came in to fill that hole that was not expected to be a hole. And he had had that sort of high BABIP, high batting average first half with the Royals, where he was batting 320 without a lot of power. And then he went to the Yankees and he got hurt, but he was still semi-productive for them. And then we get to this offseason. Joey Gallo basically gets a flyer contract. He gets a one-year deal with the Twins for $11 million. And the White Sox break the bank, at least by their standards, with a a five-year, $75 million contract for Andrew Benatendi. And that contract, I think, probably surprised some people, right? It's just that he got that much. But even so, I don't know how many people would have said, I'd rather have 
Gallo than Benintendi now. I think probably the the disparity in pay might have been a little smaller for some other teams, perhaps. But yeah. still, like clearly, Benintendi had taken the lead, and yet the gap in projections was pretty minuscule, just because Gallo had a track record of of performing at a higher right. level. And so coming into the season, neither had a really robust projection. But according to the Fangraph steps charts, I think Benintendi was at 2.7 and Gallo was at 2.2 war. So very little daylight between them, despite a lot of daylight between the contracts that they got this offseason. Well, and, and also between them as people, because see, one of them is so much taller. <laughs> there, there's that, too. <laughs> and now it seems like six or so weeks into the season that it's flipped again, right? Yeah. And Gallo's back to mashing and Benintendi has a 75 WRC plus and has yet to hit a home run this season. Yeah. And so now how many people would still want Benintendi over Gallo, let alone pay Benintendi way more? So these two players are now just sort of associated in my mind, I guess, because it was like, the projections and the longer track record said Gallo's better. You'd rather have Gallo. I think I mentioned when the Yankees made the decision that we want to swap Gallo essentially for Benintendi that the projections even then said that Gallo is the better player, right? Now, the projections right. didn't take into account the quotes, the words that were coming out of Gallo's mouth, right, which were just almost, I mean, just you were taken aback to read how miserable he seemed yeah. to be in the Bronx. yeah. So I, I didn't doubt that it was a wise decision for, for both parties to move on from each yeah. other there. But still, kind of clean the slate, reset, new town, new threads, etc. Would that still linger or not? And now it seems like the longer track record, again, is being borne out by the fact that Gallo's back to his old slugging ways thus far, whereas Benintendi's having an even more extreme power outage. Yeah, I... Um, I I have yet to sort out a way for us to include psychological anguish yeah. in the projections, which is probably for the best because mm -hmm. trying to quantify that seems like a bit of pretty nasty accounting. But um, it was such a precipitous fall for him that – and the him here, I mean, being Gallo. And again, like, of course, any fall would be precipitous because he's just so <laughs> tall. But – um. You know, when you're trying to make sort of mental adjustments to that, I find big dramatic falls like that to be tricky because m mentally I w either want to attribute it almost entirely to like bad variants that will just course correct or mm -hmm. you're like, or he's broken fundamentally. Like on some level, I think there are players where I, I'm always worried, like, will you ever get a hit again? Like mm -hmm. ever again? Or you just has something... You know, do you have, like, hitter yips, basically? Mm -hmm. And with Gallo, that felt a little unfair because he is still, in a way that is, like, really amazing for a guy his size. Like, he's a good base runner. He's defensively impressive, yeah. right? Like, there are other tools that can bolster the profile and sort of provide a a baseline of performance. But but then you wonder, like, if, if what is ailing him is his like sort of psychological relationship to the game, either in terms specifically of where he is playing or just generally like how long is it going to be before those um, other aspects of the profile that might again, give him some baseline of performance are impacted 
in a way that would be totally understandable, right? If you're in the midst of dealing with something that um, is is pretty profound, it seems odd that it would only be isolated to your performance at the plate, right? Or at least mm-hmm. that it would be isolated over the long term. I've always been kind of a, I've always been just okay on Ben Intendi. And so yeah. when he like hasn't been doing well, I'm like, yeah, that seems right. <laughs> like it's just um the 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 profile is is pretty limited. Um mm-hmm. right? Like he he doesn't hit for that much power. The defense seems like it's declining. And so then it's like, okay, if he can't get on base, like what is gonna make him right. Yeah. I, I've always been fascinated by Gal because he's just so extreme. I right. wrote something about him and talked to him almost a decade ago at Grantland and I called him the most interesting man in the minors. And he was because it was like, will this profile work? Just the right. extreme swing and miss and also the extreme power. And yeah. it did work at least for yeah. a while and then it catastrophically stopped working and right. now it's working again and I know Ben Clemens wrote about him for Fangrass this mm-hmm. week and he broke down what he's doing differently he's uh, swinging more often early in the count and taking advantage of some fastballs and Robert Orr also wrote about him and noted yes. that he's laying off changeups change and yep. so I don't know whether that will continue once pitchers realize, oh, he's back and maybe we shouldn't throw these fat pitches to him anymore because he's still Joey Gallo and he will hit them a mile. But I hope it keeps working because even though he's almost like an avatar of three true outcomes and a lot of people will lament and and bemoan the gallofication of baseball as a whole – the fact that he is just such an outlier, even compared to a, a league that maybe has looked increasingly like him offensively. Yeah. It's still extremes are always going to be interesting, even if it's an extreme that you wouldn't really want other players to look and play like that. Right. But the fact that there's one guy who does that makes him really interesting, especially if it works and he could actually make it work so well that he could be a a star player, at least for a time. So I hope that it keeps working. I mean, he still strikes out a ton, but a ton for anyone else is still like less than he's ever struck out before. (laughs) It's just how extreme he is. He's he's struck out in a third of his plate appearances exactly, which would be a career low for him. So it's uh, that's just, that's Gallo for you. So I hope he can keep making it work. He's been playing mostly first base, but he had kind of a juggling acrobatic trick catch the other day in the outfield that started a, a double play that was fun to watch too. So he could still make some plays out there. I just, I enjoy him. But I always wonder with extreme fluctuations like that, we don't always get the insight from the player that we got from Gallo into his mindset. And so sometimes you're left to wonder what is he thinking and how is he feeling and how is that impacting his performance? And there's always going to be fluctuation in performance just because of the nature of the sport. I I think that's probably a big reason why baseball players are reputed to be so superstitious is that they play one of the most random sports. So maybe you just, you find yourself kind of wearing the same underwear every day or whatever it is, just in in some attempt to exert over uh, order over just this inherently kind of anarchic, chaotic pursuit where balls are going to bounce in the beans sometimes, and sometimes they're going to go your way. And you just can't do that much to control that. But I think a lot of slumps, if we actually knew the true causes, like sometimes it really is just randomness. And sometimes it's uh, you're hitting balls hard and they're not falling. 
And sometimes there is something going on there that we're not privy to. It could be an injury. It could be just mechanical issues. And that's, I guess, part of the randomness, sort of, but it's a different kind of randomness. It's not like batted ball luck. It's just like you might be nursing some injury or you might be out of whack. And those things might be indistinguishable to us statistically, but probably not to the player, right? But you figure that they'll fix those things generally if they're talented and if they have a long enough track record of making it work that even if the approach at the plate is off and the swing is off, it's like, well, it worked before, so maybe they can get it back. And that I guess is what the twins were counting on or or hoping for. And Gallo has rewarded them for that thus far. Yeah. I think he, you're right that he's a good, he's a good reminder to um, not assume that we know everything that's going on with someone because we're not always going to get that level of candor. And we might not always, you know, be dealing with a player that has that um, sort of amount of, of, insight into himself, right, is able to articulate it in terms that are um, easily comprehensible. I think people struggle to know themselves their whole whole lives. (laughs) And so to be able to say, oh, yeah, here's what's going on with me and to, you know, have the gumption to be in New York and be like, it sucks here. (laughs) (laughs) because um you know uh a lot of of brave people wouldn't wouldn't even dare ben they wouldn't even dare because um you you know folks don't take kindly to that uh, sentiment in the Mm -hmm. in the five boroughs yep all right so there are a few articles that we wanted to talk about here I will not make you guess what the FIP of newest Rays reliever, Zach Littell, will be because the Rays have claimed another reliever, <laughs> Zach Littell. We won't play the the Jake Diekman FIP game, I think, with Zach Littell. Although I will say that Zach Littell, forever in my mind, I will remember him as an obsessive cruiser, by which I mean someone <laughs> I should probably clarify um, what I mean. <laughs> Man, terminology can get you in trouble sometimes. Sure, yeah, you know. What I mean sure by that is that he takes cruise ships all the time. That's uh, that's what everyone understands that, that phrase to mean. That He's a cruise ship guy? Huge cruise ship guy. I think it was Sam that I talked to about this. This was on episode 1508. We were both shocked to learn there was this article published February 2020 by Phil Miller in the Star Tribune about Zach Littell's just like obsession with cruise ships and his whole family. My family is a little cruise happy, you might say, he said. And like that was the least of it. He said that he had spent more than 80 nights aboard cruise ships in the past year. More than 80 nights. That's a significant percent, especially because he's a baseball player, which means he cannot be uh, on cruise ships for most of the year, right? I think we did the math on that episode about like the percentage of nights that are not during the baseball season that Zach Littell must have been on a cruise ship. And it was like a huge percentage of the time. Like he had, you know, diamond level status. He had like frequent cruiser status. They probably don't call it that. But maybe they do in like a a cheeky kind of way. But it's a family affair. Like they they celebrate holidays on cruise ships. Like he was at sea for three months, like on cruise ships in that past year. And what I have wondered more than almost anything else about baseball in the past couple of years is 
is Zach Littell still a cruise ship guy post-pandemic, post-COVID, oh, yeah. right? And and was he cruising during the pandemic? Did he take a break? Did his family swear off the cruising, at least until the COVID died down, at least until we had vaccines, like until they weren't petri dishes of disease, at least, you know, as much as they were at the height of the pandemic. So I have continued to wonder about that. And I hope that uh, some media member will ask Zach Littell about that. I just I need to know whether he still has the same affinity for cruises or or whether COVID cured him of that. <laughs> but I don't know. That's that's just when I think Zach Littell, I think cruise ships. What an unfortunate association. I've never <laughs> been I've never been um, moved to take a cruise. You know, mm-hmm. I've never been a. A cruise, a cruise person. <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't like that. Yeah. No, thank you. I'm, I'm not into that. Even I did it one time when I was a kid, and I gotta say, I enjoyed it. I, I would do it again, despite all the great reasons not to. <laughs> I, I just, I, we don't have to go into whether being on cruise ships or not is oh. is a good idea. I don't want to upset anyone if if Zach Littell is is listening. But there are a lot of places you can relax, I suppose, and see the world without being in the same place in close quarters with the many people who can make you ill, et cetera. But there's uh, something kind of nice about it. I went on an Alaskan cruise, not a Caribbean cruise, but I'd do it again someday. If uh, Zach Littell hit me up, <laughs> maybe hmm. you and I, maybe you and I can, can cruise together. That... <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay. Ben. Moving on. Oh, Ben. <laughs> so I wanted to talk a little bit about the internationalization of baseball because there's been some news on that front. There was a, an announcement. It, it seems like confirmation that opening day next year, the first major league games of the 2024 season will be in South Korea, which is a first. And that's just the start, really. It's part of the CBA, which uh, I imagine you still have not cover to cover read yet, but, but one of these days. But part of the CBA is that there are plans for more baseball in more countries. And we just saw the first regular season games played in Mexico, right? And that that was uh, entertaining in some ways. And so there are going to be games in Seoul. And it's going to be the Dodgers and the Padres, it sounds like, which should be fun. And the only part of it that that I don't love is that sometimes when there are these uh, international series to start the season, they will be way before the opening day for most other teams. It was kind of cool yeah. to have like every team start at the same time this uh-huh. season. That was really nice. So yeah. there's always that weird like... You have to decide when opening day is. Is opening day the first day that a major league game is played? Because yeah. it used to be that there'd be like one game on a night and then the rest of the teams would play the next day. But then sometimes there's a series in Japan or somewhere that's like a week before everyone else plays. And then it's like, when did the season actually start? Should we be pedantic about this or not? But there's going to be games in, in Seoul, which obviously hotbed of baseball, South Korea. So that's yeah. nice. And there are going to be games in in London. There will be more games in London. There have already been some, of course. And there are going to be games in France, it sounds like. There are going to be games in Paris in 2025, 
the first MLB games in continental Europe, mm -hmm. which is an interesting milestone. And uh, of course, you know, there have been games now in Mexico and Japan and Australia and London, in addition to the places that major league games are regularly played. And I'm all for playing games in as many places as possible. I am looking forward to this. I don't really know what kind of baseball community there is in Paris. Of course, there are baseball fans in many countries all over the world that are not known as hotbeds of baseball. And there are a lot of people who play baseball in Europe and high-level leagues in various places in Europe. I don't know that the reception in Paris would be super strong or that there are many, many, many people clamoring for Major League Baseball in Paris. I could be wrong about that. So I'm sorry if I'm slighting the very intense and, and dedicated baseball community there. I'm sure that whatever community there is, is pretty intense and dedicated. We have yeah. listeners in, in France sure. who listen to the show and, and yeah. talk to us. So I'm not saying there aren't baseball fans there. It's just maybe not the first place that you would think of. Right. But But I'm all for generally expanding where MLB is played because baseball is more popular in other countries now than it is in this one, right? And we saw that in the WBC, I think. So there may still be more baseball fans here than anywhere else just because the population is so huge. But in terms of the proportion of the population that is really just diehard intense into baseball, we have been lapped by other places. And it's fun to experience that enthusiasm even vicariously because so often the discussion about baseball domestically is baseball is dying and it's not the national pastime anymore and it's just so tiresome there's some truth to it obviously right. i went back to speak at my grammar school recently and talked to some seventh graders and their dads and during the q a portion one of the dads asked a very long-winded question about <laughs> <laughs> do people still care about baseball and are kids still interested in baseball it's like thanks buddy i'm up here talking about baseball <laughs> you're gonna ask me that question right now and <laughs> <laughs> it's more a comment than a question you suck and yeah. so it's the thing you like <laughs> right there wasn't really a question as far as i recall there's was, so ben there's so rarely actually a question that was yeah. an aside. so i i conceded that yeah obviously there's been some some sleeking of uh some slackening of enthusiasm relative to earlier eras i also noted that people have been bemoaning that exact same thing going back to the 19th century right, right? and we've talked about that and I also, though, in my response, I, I mentioned the enthusiasm for baseball worldwide, and I talked about the WBC, and I talked about the percentage of people in Japan who were watching Team Japan play in the WBC, and it's kind of nice to be able to focus on that yeah. when everyone wants to seemingly fixate on baseball. It's not a national game anymore and talk about TV ratings and often sort of distort the situation in many ways. But to be able to point to, okay, yeah, in some ways, uh, baseball's popularity has slipped in the U.S., but hey, look over there. They love baseball. <laughs> They're so into baseball. Baseball's growing and spreading. And I think there's a, a vitality to that that is really refreshing. It's a, a change from the normal doom and gloom conversation. Yeah, yeah. I think that the way that I would characterize sort of the the discourse around baseball in the last while, 
um, has generally been, and they're, you know, I don't say this to paint an overly rosy portrait, but it feels like it has, it has had energy, like excited energy behind it, um, in a way that isn't, you know, the pure, like purely the manufacturing of marketing or anything like that. Like people feel light and sort of frothy about the game in a way that is, um, really exciting. And I, you know, does it hold the same cultural primacy it once did? I mean, like, no, but okay. Who cares? <laughs> like, yeah. I, I don't. nothing does other right. than football. But well, and uh, I think that we we have perhaps we've maybe overstated the existence of overstated the existence of monoculture or failed to appreciate like how early the fracture has taken mm-hmm. place. Like, I I don't know. I just am increasingly skeptical of that. It's like who. Mm-hmm. who Who's monoculture, though? Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure there's some truth to that, too. So, I think I think baseball's fine. I think baseball's doing pretty fine. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and I've, I've got to think that there's probably no better way to drum up interest in a sport than to have your, your league play games there, right? I mean, that's a, that's a real sign of, I don't know if it's commitment, but at least yeah. like interest it's kind of like a, a good faith like hey like we're we're gonna come over here <laughs> you know there are a lot of logistical hurdles and scheduling hurdles and jet lag and mm-hmm. we're we're gonna put on our traveling road show it's almost like barnstorming in a sense it's just like let's send our emissaries our baseball ambassadors over there and often you're going to a place where there's already significant interest in baseball but when you're going somewhere where there's not as much already then, of course, there's growth potential. It's a steeper uphill climb. Right. But it's also like, hey, it's it's kind of a curiosity. It's uh, we've never seen major league games here before. Let's uh, let's go take in the spectacle. And maybe most people are confused or indifferent, but some people are probably like, hey, this is cool. Like, yeah. I, I've, I've never really seen this before. I've certainly never seen it in person played at this level before. And maybe I've never really even seen it from afar because of the time difference or the difficulty of finding it. So I am all for within the constraints of not wanting to disadvantage any team by turning them into a a traveling team and and having them go all over the world. But if if teams are willing and players do seem to be willing, and I, I hope that and think that they understand that there's some benefit to this too. If you want a healthy and, and vital sport and you're not getting the same percentage of the population in this country, then you want to continue to enrich and deepen the player pool by sort of expanding your scope. So I hope that the reception to that is, is strong and and think that's a great initiative. You know, I'm not suggesting that there's uh, going to be the 31st team is going to play in Paris anytime soon or anything right. like that. But I feel like it, it can't hurt, you know, like it, it might make you sleepy for a few days right. if you go over there and come back. But beyond that, and I guess that is probably a reason to do it early so that you can be right. back to your old self by the time the season starts in earnest. Although then that also means that spring training is kind of curtailed. So there are problems, there are reasons not to do it, but I think there are great reasons to do it. Yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, does it make my schedule more complicated? (laughs) Yeah, but that's not a reason to not do it. My schedule is complicated no matter what. So, Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of of complicated, there is another article about international baseball. This is why I said it's not all rosy, Ben. (laughs) Yeah. So 
This came out about a week ago in the LA Times. It's a piece by Kevin Baxter. It's headlined, Inside the Secret Baseball Academy, the Dodgers are running in Uganda. And it's about the burgeoning baseball population in Uganda, which has generated some signings, uh, some players who've come over. The Dodgers signed two players from Uganda. There are a couple Ugandan Division Three baseball players. And all of these players hailed from this quote-unquote secret Dodgers Academy. And there have not been many players from Africa to play in the majors. There's Gifton Gope, who was not long ago on the Pirates. And then there's the pitcher Taylor Scott. They're both from South Africa. And there is, uh, of course, an enormous population that... In theory, if you could expand baseball to Africa, then that would be an enormous boon to the sport, just as we were talking about, just getting more people interested in baseball, getting more talented players involved in baseball, raising the caliber of the sport, generating interest, and from MLB's perspective, revenue, right? And this story specifically, it's about how Uganda has become the baseball hotbed of Africa, which largely seems to be because it was introduced to the region by one guy, this guy named Richard Stanley, who was a former chemical engineer for Procter & Gamble and once part owner of a minor league baseball team who was working, I'm quoting now, as a volunteer on an international development project in Uganda when he was asked to help start a baseball league for children. A year later, a soccer pitch was commandeered and a tournament for school children 12 and under was held. And it kind of caught on. And I guess there are often similar origin stories in in other countries where baseball did not originate but has Mm -hmm. since gone on to be quite popular. You know, you can read similar things about Japan, for instance, which was supposedly introduced in the 1870s by an American named Horace Wilson, who was an English professor in Tokyo and just brought baseball over and it kind of caught on. I'm I'm sure it's a little more complicated than that and maybe would have caught on anyway. But if it's not something that started there, then often there's sort of a, a Johnny Appleseed of any given sport who spreads the the love of it there. I think it's sort of uh, random that, that it could catch on and it can govern the the course of of people's lives for generations to come because someone happened to settle somewhere and decide to introduce baseball to people. I mean, I guess that's how, you know, almost everything happens in the world, whether we realize it or not. It's all kind of traced back to something that easily couldn't have happened. But I think it's also kind of heartening that even now in recent years, you could sort of light a, a a flame you know you could mm-hmm. the, the spark could catch right even in a, a place where baseball was previously largely unknown and where other sports were popular that that you could bring baseball over and that people might say oh hey yeah this is this is kind of cool you know it's it's not something that relies on having been introduced in in the 18th and 19th centuries like you could still get into baseball for the first time and and convince a, a people to play it now So that's kind of cool. And apparently Uganda is just like the total powerhouse and dominates its rivals to the extent that it has rivals in the region. So so that's, I guess, the the good news. (laughs) That's that's sort of the the positive spin. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, hey, hey, there there's another country that's embracing baseball and and more people like baseball. Great. Uh, We want a a big tent for baseball. Yes. The less savory, the more (laughs) nefarious 
aspect of this is that there does seem to be sort of a a plundering aspect yeah. to what the Dodgers are doing that uh, they appear to have parachuted in and they're trying to suck up the baseball resources of the region without sort of supporting the larger baseball initiative and some of the language in the piece some of it uh, some of it intentionally some of it possibly unintentionally I don't know yeah. but it is kind of uncomfortable I guess I mean the whole sort of situation is it's like this this secret academy like there's a guard out front you know like the Dodgers won't talk about it seemingly won't acknowledge it publicly Probably they think that this is a competitive advantage for them, right? They have uh, established a foothold in this region. They want to maintain their privileged access to the talent there. But the way that it's uh, talked about here, and they themselves are, are criticized by some people there who are coming down on the way that they have gone about it. So I wanted to summarize the situation for people who haven't read it, but what was your reaction? I just think that I'm sensitive to the fact that like no private entity is going to be able to alter the sociopolitical landscape of a country on its own. And it's certainly not going to be able to undo the impact that, you know, colonialism and extraction have had on a place. So like expecting that of of any private entity is, is I think, unrealistic. And we can expect that they will not further that legacy, right? Like, I think that that is a reasonable expectation. And I can, I can appreciate how within the context of sports, you know, if you have what you view to be a competitive advantage, it generally behooves you to keep that private, right? Whether it's, you know, hiding a guy who you see, uh, you know, on a backfield somewhere, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, who is a playing at a division two college and who you think you can get as a steal in the draft, or you've discovered a new method of injury prevention, or you have some cool new model that is going to change the way that you think about pitch design, right? You want to keep that to yourself because as soon as it travels, you lose some of the advantage. But that reality is always butting up against the the other reality, which is that often like the advantage you're talking about are people. And in this case, very young people, (laughs) right? And we know, we don't have to rehash all of the abuses um, and terrible incentives that exist in the international amateur space, but I think that what we should expect of the league and its teams is that as we look to new places where baseball is less well-established or might be entirely new in sporting landscape that we will at the at a bare minimum not replicate those same abuses and bad incentives and I, I you know like obviously I haven't been to this academy and I I don't think that like it's on the Dodgers to to provide opportunity for every kid in Uganda, but like it is on them to not exploit those kids. Mm-hmm. And I think that whenever you're entering a market as the only avenue that those 
young amateurs are going to potentially have to a, a career in baseball, you're inherently in an advantageous position power-wise, even more than like teams would be in the DR, where if you're the best young amateur in the Dominican Republic, there are going to be multiple teams that are trying to secure your services as a professional. And I don't mean that as if like they might not be super unsavory in the way that they do that and that there aren't going to be potentially hundreds of kids who don't end up signing a contract with a big bonus whose lives are permanently disrupted by their attempt to play professional baseball. Like that, Those things all still happen. But you do at least have some amount of competition for contracts and you have an infrastructure and you have, for better or worse, you know, agents and trainers who have some lived and professional experience with dealing with those teams. And so for a, a club to parachute in and try to have this private, separate, you know, secret little thing that just feels like it's automatically going to lend itself to potential abuse. And then to talk about it in the same way you would talk about like natural resource extraction. I think you're right that some of that is intentional in this piece and some of it feels like it's not in a way that like I might've had feedback on as an editor. Um, You know, it's, it's very tempting to look at sports as a ladder, right? Out of, um, bad situations and dire circumstance. And I don't want to speak, pretend that I have, uh, you know, firsthand knowledge or, or particular expertise on the conditions on the ground in Uganda. So like, I don't want to speak out of turn there, but like we, we tend to, to valorize sports as this ladder, right? It's an opportunity to pull yourself up out of circumstance. And that can be true, but it doesn't have to be. And I think that you, want to be really, really, really careful when you're going into a place that doesn't, particularly that doesn't have a lot of context for professional baseball, that you are not exploiting vulnerable people. And without oversight, I don't know why we would expect it to be different in a place with less competition and, you know, less big league infrastructure than it would be in places where there's a ton of baseball talent and we still see abuse. So mm-hmm. this, it's not that there can't be a version of, you know, hey, we're we're trying to spread baseball. We think that there might be people here who are talented and who could help our organization. But, you know, we're going to make sure that we have, like, age limits, that there will be education involved. We're going to try to be a partner to local governments on infrastructure so that, like, you know, we're not doing this in a way that is inherently exploitative. It's not that there might not be a version of that that can work, but I just, you know, whenever you have secret involved, it feels mm-hmm. like where is the where is the guarantee that that's what we're getting, you know? Right. And so yeah. I think we have to be you know, adopt a posture of skepticism from the jump. And this, I think, just goes to show how much urgency there is for the Players Association, for the league, for teams to figure out a way to be less predatory in this space, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Because it's, you know, it's it's kids, like it's kids. Mm-hmm. So right. we kind of need a hop to on this. Yeah, there's a, a passage in the piece 
that says it's unlikely the team will be able to keep the Academy secret for long, though, because as the first big league franchise to plant its flag on soil that is rapidly becoming rich in baseball talent, the Dodgers are uniquely positioned to be begin harvesting those riches. What? So nope. yeah, we're talking about nope. planting flags and harvesting yeah, people. Nope. So that's nope. not great. The reason why I, I suggested that there's some degree of intention to that is that the piece does acknowledge that sure. interpretation of what the Dodgers are doing. Uh, still may have not been the best phrase, phrasing. It's not like the piece is like, yeah, rah, rah, go Dodgers. Like, right. you know, go, right. I mean, it, it raises the concerns that, that we're expressing here and, and gives yes. voice to people. I would not be aware of all the issues involved if not for this piece bringing right. attention to those. So it says... There's another passage. Many Ugandans say the Dodgers, unlike Stanley, the guy who introduced baseball there, have acted like the colonizers of centuries past, mining the country for its natural resources, in this case, athletes, but refusing to give back. Then there's a quote by a guy named Derek Bice, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, a former Dodger scout who says, what the Dodgers are doing is picking the best, the cream of the crop. And if you're not the best, they're going to drop you. Now, Obviously, that's sort of how scouting works everywhere, you know, yeah. to some extent, right? I mean, yeah. the whole point is to find the best players. And if you're not the best, then ultimately you don't get to be a big leaker and uh, the team moves on, right? So that is sort of just describing the process of talent acquisition. But right. also, there are things that I think they could do given the specifics of this situation, as the piece goes on to say. Baseball equipment is hard to come by in Uganda since none of the things needed to play the game are manufactured locally and shipping them in can prove costly. Yet the Dodgers have shared little, leaving those on the other side of their walled compound to rely on gear smuggled in by missionary groups. So, yeah, if it's just like we're going to squat here and the only place that you can play baseball in this area with equipment other than using rocks and tree branches, which is what the article says some some people are forced to use, which is not an unfamiliar story, then it would be nice, I think, if you were like, hey, we're, we're promoting baseball in this region, even if that's not our primary purpose, but also we're trying to recruit people to play in our organization it would be nice just to to give back and to sort of support the community right. and uh, give some sign that we appreciate that uh, we're here to not just try to get a competitive advantage even though that's obviously why they're there ultimately and and that's what their business is about but they're the dodgers you know like it, it wouldn't cost a, a fortune for them to right. hand out some baseball equipment i mean it's almost like when we talk about like minor league pay and nutrition and everything it's like it just makes sense like forget about the humane aspect of things but also it seems like just generating goodwill and right. further interest in the sport in the area like that seems like it would not be a bad idea right especially because as rivals and competitors come in and say hey we want to have an academy here well if you were the first and also you engendered some goodwill by handing out good baseball equipment or providing clinics or coaching or whatever it is that that you could do at not an exorbitant expense, then that could create some loyalty toward you as opposed to the next team to come into the area. Right. So you'd think it wouldn't be a bad idea even on that level. I, I think that, and I don't imagine um, that this is a 
perspective or philosophy that is unique to the Dodgers by any means. They just happen to be the the club involved here. But I think that one thing we have observed of baseball in the last um, probably 10 years, and this probably precedes that too, but there's a, a level of plausible deniability that comes with being the first mover into a space. And I think that a lot of the ethical and moral questions and, and issues that are present in new frontiers of the sport, whether it's scouting players in countries that don't have a rich baseball tradition or wearable tech or sign stealing or, you know, what have you. Some of those issues are hard to anticipate, but a lot of them aren't. And I think that teams are aware of the fact that if they're the first ones in a space, before regulations can be written and before specific incidents can occur that will inspire either the league or the Players Association to say, well, hold on now, we need to put some bumpers in place to guard against abuse, that they're going to be able to say, well you know, what do you want from me? We were the first ones here. There weren't rules. So, mm-hmm. you know, gotcha. Pro tip for next time. Won't do that again. But in the meantime, they've been able to sort of reap the benefits of being a first mover and taking advantage of, you know, either obviously wrong acts or moral gray areas. And then, you know, rules come in and stuff gets tamped down and the next team that does it doesn't get to to take advantage of that stuff. But because there isn't regulation in place, they don't really get in trouble for it either, right? Because mm-hmm. well, they didn't violate a rule. Mm-hmm. And I think the teams are savvy about that and they know that they can do it. And so that is the other sort of impetus for being the first mover um, is that you get to do things before we say, wait, hold on, (laughs) and put a rule in place. And, like, I think that that perspective and sort of approach gets valorized because it can feel clever and it can feel groundbreaking, but it it can also just be obviously icky. And so Mm -hmm. I think that there are, I'm sure, particular and idiosyncratic aspects of this that are going to be unique to Uganda, but like a lot of the stuff that we would have to anticipate about behaving and conducting oneself ethically in a market like that, particularly around very young amateurs, we we know what a lot of those questions and concerns are already because there's been, you know, decades of, of baseball teams operating in the international space and doing it in ways that are unsavory. So, mm-hmm it's fine for us to expect more and to, to ask like really hard questions now mm-hmm. so that like little kids in Uganda don't get taken advantage of by literally the Los Angeles Dodgers. Like what are we doing? I guess one good thing the article mentions, unlike in the Dominican Republic where every major league team has an academy, the few players the Dodgers do invite to their Ugandan facility aren't under contract, meaning they're free to train there, then sign with another team. And that did happen when the Pirates swooped in and, and signed a pitcher who had been an academy player for the Dodgers. So I guess that's a, a little less exploitative, potentially, even though yeah. for now they're almost the only game in town, right. at least when it comes to kind of an on-the-ground permanent presence. But at least you're not 
bound to the Dodgers if you train there. Someone else could sign you if they offer better terms or if they start their own academy, if they start behaving in a different way, then you wouldn't be locked in essentially to the Dodgers because they were the first ones there. Yeah, I think mostly my takeaway having read this is like Rob Manfred has has put a lot of time and attention and effort into one baseball, right? Into consolidating right. the US baseball presence under Major League Baseball and having the league's sort of fingers in everything and everything falling under the league's purview. And I think that there's a lot about that that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and isn't great for labor. But this actually seems like a place where it's like, okay, Rob, you want one baseball? This seems like an opportunity for you to assert one baseball's sort of power and reach in a way that actually hopefully would work toward the benefit of the players and communities on the ground, right? Like, mm -hmm. why does why do the Dodgers get to just, like, have a baseball fiefdom in Uganda? What? What's up well. with that? Why did they get to do that, Rob? You, <laughs> You're really gonna you're really gonna stand for this in the face of one baseball. So I, I think that um, this should be a thing that the league is like, hey, hey, one moment, please. <laughs> if anyone's going to get to establish the ground rules, and it's not, and you know, like I'm saying that as if the the league's own track record with enforcing rules internationally is so sterling. It's definitely <laughs> right. not. Yeah. Um, but what an opportunity to turn over a new leaf. Rob. Yeah. And I'm using his I'm using first name in a derogatory. <laughs> right. I guess the the lure of like, hey, we'll be the only team there and we can just uh put our our stamp on on baseball in this region, in this country, in this continent and we'll have a competitive advantage for decades and decades like that sort of thing. I guess you could say it it leads to the the cultivation of the sport in that it gives incentive to a team to move in there and establish a presence. And then if they have success, then that gives incentive to the next team to do it. And the next thing you know, perhaps there's a thriving baseball community, but there could be other ways to do that, whether it's just that a grassroots, it's introduced by someone else. Obviously, baseball predated the Dodgers' presence there. It, it yeah. sounds like there was a thriving baseball community yeah. already. And so, yes, it I wonder whether the league could step in and just say, let's not repeat some past mistakes because uh, baseball teams will do what baseball teams will do. I mean, it, it occurs to me that a century ago, scouts were regularly referred to as ivory hunters, right? Which yeah. I guess, given this development, brings kind of a, a different resonance. But the whole idea was it's just like – we're we're hunting, you know, we're hunting yeah. for talent. We're just going to swoop in and we're going to find this talented player and we're going to spirit him away, right? And right. and the better hunters will get the better players and we'll be better at baseball. So that's it's kind of always uh, been part of the business, but it has always been an unsavory business in a lot of respects. So, yeah. Yeah, teams are always going to want to spend less on players. Players are always going to be at a disadvantage in terms of the, the power dynamic between the player and the team. That's true 
everywhere. That's true in the domestic amateur space. That's true in the minor leagues. That's true in free agency. And I think that like we don't want to obscure that reality all throughout the process, but I think we'd also be naive to assume that there aren't gradations within that power differential. And mm-hmm. I can't think of a, a wider chasm that could exist than between a, a team with the reach and resources of the Dodgers operating in a country that doesn't have baseball infrastructure, um, or at least doesn't have you know a particularly mature baseball infrastructure, and where the players there don't necessarily have the the support system around them of agents and trainers. And again, I don't want to say that like all of that is always above board and that there can't be unsavory stuff that obviously happens. It happens in the international space, but like, it just seems like it would be hard to imagine a circumstance where you have a bigger power differential. And when that kind of a power differential exists, like it just lends itself to abuse. And I don't mean to say that like there aren't people operating this facility who don't have like a genuine desire for there to be like fun competitive baseball in Uganda. I'm sure there are, but in terms of the institutional power that's being brought to bear, it's wildly out of whack and that's a problem. And clearly teams will just keep pressing this point even when they've been previously under investigation around this <laughs> right. stuff, yeah, right? Like a, Yeah. Yeah, the Dodgers It's not uh, like the <laughs> Dodgers have a sterling track record here. No, although they do have a, a track record of doing this sort of thing, of, of being the first mover, of uh, establishing a foothold, of being pioneers in a new region, because they were the first team to open a baseball academy in Latin America that was run by a, an MLB franchise back right. in 1987 in, in the DR, and then... There was a wave of Dominican Republic players who signed with the Dodgers. I mean, right. guys like Pedro Martinez and and Adrian Beltre, future Hall of Famers, and Raul Mondesi and, and guys like that. So they've done that before, and they're probably following the same model and hoping to reap the same rewards. But it would be nice if, if some aspects of the model could be a little bit different. And gosh, we could go back even further. I mean, yeah. with uh, Branch Rickey and the color barrier yeah. and Jackie Robinson and, and Don Newcomb and Joe Black and Jim Gilliam and, and all of these players from the Negro Leagues signing with the Dodgers. And then as has come up on the show before, obviously that, uh, that had a devastating effect on the Negro Leagues yep. eventually too. But the Dodgers were at the forefront of integration and and because they were the first to do that, then they ended up with uh, a lot of the talent, though not as much of the talent as they could have because they passed on some players, too. But I guess it kind of is history repeating itself to some extent. And and I guess maybe that's a, a segue into another article we wanted to mention because there was an athletic piece this week by Stephen Nesbitt that provided an update on MLB integrating the Negro League statistics into its official record. And the update is that there isn't one, really, and that there hasn't been much progress made there. And it was sort of assumed and presumed by everyone, I think MLB included, that the league would partner with Seamheads, as Fangraphs has, as Baseball Reference has, and that that would expedite the process of that their great Negro Leagues database would be incorporated into MLBs, and and it was always 
bound to be complicated and it was going to take a lot of deliberation and figuring out how exactly do we incorporate these stats and how do we display them? And with MLB, there's just the whole hurdle of the Elias Sports Bureau and what is official and what is not. So it was always going to be complicated, but it has sort of stalled. And so Nesbitt provided just this uh, look at where things stand. And and basically, it looks like it's going to be years and years because for whatever reason, the negotiations between MLB and Seamheads broke down and they are not partnering. And neither MLB nor Seamheads commented officially for the piece. So it's not exactly clear what the issue was. It sounds like it was not that MLB was not willing to pay for it, but there were other issues here. So I'll I'll quote what it says. This is uh, about as specific as it gets. Representatives from the league office and seam heads met on and off over the past two plus years, but after a meeting around opening day this spring failed to result in a deal, MLB elected to pursue RetroSheet as an alternative. According to sources familiar with the negotiations, the sticking point for seam heads was not compensation, but rather concerns about control of the data, how it would be used, and who would have a say in its implementation. There's also a, another note later on that MLB and Elias were requiring or would have required access to game level statistics, whereas what's displayed at Fangraphs and Baseball Reference now, it's like season and, and yeah. career level stats. Yeah, it's aggregated. Right. Yeah. So that becomes even more complicated. So it's not clear exactly what the sticking point is, but the upshot is that MLB is now going to rely on RetroSheet's efforts, which will be public and just provided for everyone as all of RetroSheet's data is. But that's going to be a years-long process that is well underway, but far from completion, too, because they're basically applying just the RetroSheet model and process that they've done with such success to other leagues, to the Negro Leagues. And of course, the data is is tougher to acquire. And I imagine that they're retracing some of the same steps that Seamheads has already taken. So it's going to be a while, years, it sounds like, before those Negro League stats are officially linked with the Major League stats, at least in Major League Baseball's record books. So we talked a lot about the decision to reclassify the Negro Leagues and that whole belated effort. And I did some writing and reporting about that that was spurred by an effectively wild listener. So it's unfortunate, I guess, that this has hit these roadblocks. And I don't know how much MLB is at fault with the specific points of the negotiations, as was pointed out in the piece. Maybe they could have locked these things down before they publicized it all. But then again, it was so overdue, I think, to do what they did that a further delay once the issue was raised also wouldn't have been the best. So ideally, they could have found a way to get on the same page as, as Fangraphs did and as Baseball Reference did. I understand the desire to, on RetroSheet's part, to like be precise and follow their own process. But yeah, it's it does seem as if if you're not in a place to then make the stats that you are acknowledging, you know, in a long overdue way as major league um, quality, like why why make the announcement right? Like people put a lot of stock in being able to see those stats and those players represented on MLB's 
official website, right? Like that means something to people. I, I, as much as I appreciate the place that, that we occupy and the baseball reference occupies in, in the larger sort of stack community. Like, I think that for a lot of kind of normie fans, like it's MLB or bust, right? Yeah. I I was wondering about that because, you know, I, I do think that in a lot of ways it's better that MLB did what it did, even if it has not fully followed through on the implementation of that, because I think a lot of good has come from that. And, yeah, and I think that's true. That it kind of it got the ball rolling. I mean, mm-hmm. the ball was already rolling because right. of other advocates and researchers and everything. But but MLB doing that, changing its designation belatedly, that really prompted a lot of action. And yeah. in in the first piece that I wrote about this in, in August 2020, which was basically when I reported that MLB was considering changing that classification, which was kind of because I approached them about it and was like, why haven't you or would yeah. you? And I, I wrote the difference that major would make might seem semantic, but there would be tangible benefits to the new designation at baseball reference. The Negro leagues are grouped with minor leagues and foreign leagues. Sean Foreman says that if MLB were to reclassify the Negro leagues, they would likely join the SBRC. That's the the committee that made those uh, initial designations uh, decades ago, join the SBRC approved leagues on the leagues page on baseball reference and be included in the site's major league historical totals. In addition, pages for players who spent time in both the Negro leagues and the integrated major would display all their stats in the same place without cordoning off the Negro League's numbers on a separate tab. The site's subscription-based StatHead service might also add the option to slice and dice data from black baseball. Foreman says his company would attempt to acquire more comprehensive Negro League's records and perhaps fund for, for the research. Like, all of that has happened, right? And that came about, I, I think, in large part because MLB did that. Yeah. And so... I kind of hesitate to say, like, yeah, it would have been great if they could have gotten all the ducks in the row early or or if they had just kind of done what everyone expected that they would do and just partner with Seamheads and sort out whatever the differences were. But I don't think it would be better off if they hadn't done it because yeah. the fact that all those stats are on baseball reference and are on fan graphs and that yeah. there's been a lot of uh, attention to those players and to their accomplishments and probably, you know, there's uh, been uh, – donations and funding for the Negro sure. Leagues Museum and you know, Negro Leagues players inducted into the Hall of Fame. Like all of these things I, I think have flowed to some extent from MLB's announcement. So, and honestly, like before I saw this article, I was not really actively thinking about when is MLB finally going to follow through? Because like, I, I guess in my mind, where it really mattered, it it had happened already. Like, right, right. You know, and as you said, like the normie baseball fan, you know, not to not to insult the normie baseball fan. No, we welcome yeah. we welcome everyone. But yeah, we do people who are not already devotees of Fangraphs or Baseball Reference. I I assume that it would carry a lot of weight for them. I mean, f- to me, like. Baseball reference, especially for historical stats, fan graphs for for more modern stats and historical stats. Like those are kind of the the papers of record. Like they're the baseball encyclopedias right. these days, in my mind. You know, like I had to go look at MLB.com to even confirm that they had historical leaderboards. They do. <laughs> but I honestly I was not sure that they did. Cause like yeah. when was the last time I actually looked at that? Right. Yeah, I always go to baseball reference or fan graphs for those things. So I I would be curious, like MLB.com obviously gets a ton of traffic. 
I I wonder how much traffic like MLP.com's stat pages for like historical years gets compared to baseball reference, let's say. Yeah. Like I, I gotta think baseball reference is kind of the go-to destination. So like it's more than a symbolic gesture, I guess. Like there are probably ways in which uh, I don't know, like even now you, you will see on broadcasts, like people will cite those stats from baseball reference or fan graphs. So in a way it's like MLB's gotta do it too. But the the places where it's like most visible, at least to to me and like to the internet, I feel like have have done it already and are actively working on all of that. So, like I don't know. To me, I guess it's not the baseball encyclopedia days. It's not like the days when Elias controlled all the data and everyone else, you know, had to start Retrosheet or its predecessors just so that we would be able to actually consult some numbers. Like it's all out there and at some sites has been thoughtfully integrated already. So right. I think that that kind of ameliorates the problem to some extent. I think that that's all very fair to say. It does make me wonder. I mean, I know that they have, clearly they have specific requirements, but, and I know that they're not saying any of this is like a commentary on either BREF or Fangraphs, but only. Like they've done, Siemens has done all of this incredible work, which obviously MLB acknowledged in their, in their announcement of the, the overdue recognition. So, and you're right that neither the league nor Siemens commented specifically for the piece. So, you know, the, the exact contours of the um, disagreement are, I think a little bit cloudy here, but um, it Mm -hmm. is a, it's surprising. It is a surprising thing. But you're right. I hadn't thought about, hey, where where are they on MLB.com? Because I occupy one corner of the internet. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, you know, stories like this show that not everyone lives in that same corner. Mm-hmm. And for, uh, you know, some of the surviving family members of these players that, that you know, the, the corner of the internet where they want to see this really come to fruition is unfortunately a number of years away. So Right. Yeah. There was some backlash, of course, to MLB just making that announcement from people just being like, well, who is MLB to to decide this? Right. And and really it was, I mean, it was rectifying basically MLB making the mistake of of not classifying the Negro Leagues as major leagues previously. I mean, that's one of many it, <laughs> mistakes. It, but, it didn't but, help that they used the word elevate. Yes, the, the language. Yeah, that that was a problem. <laughs> but, that was that was um, an that was unforced unforced <laughs> yes. error. But yes, uh, it was a meaningful right. one. So yes, but as a lot of people were pointing out, like uh, MLP doesn't like own the legacy of the Negro Leagues. Like right. uh, <laughs> the Negro Leagues uh, existed because. MLB, I mean, to the extent that an entity like MLB existed at the time because white baseball said it had to be separate right. and wouldn't allow those players to be there. And so, you know, MLB should be celebrated basically for people were worried that the distinctions would be broken down, right? That that MLB would kind of get credit, I guess, for some enlightened stance sure. as pertained to the Negro Leagues without acknowledging just the greater legacy there, right? Right, and, totally. And, and I hope and think that, that that distinction has not been lost. But also, MLB, it's a big deal when, when MLB does something. I mean, it's yeah. it's the 
biggest and and highest level and most famous uh, baseball league there is. Sean Gibson, former guest of ours who's quoted in the piece, says nothing is bigger than Major League Baseball, right? right. So when Major League Baseball makes that change in designation, it's it's going to generate a lot of attention, right? And, yeah. and there have been other separate independent efforts, like Sabre had its own process to decide what it thought the years and the leagues right. that should be classified as major that reached the same conclusion. But yes. there is, like, all of the, the data, like, MLB is not generating the data. Like, researchers have done that tirelessly, and there's this whole network and infrastructure of of stat sites and fan graphs and baseball reference, which obviously have some ties to to MLB, but mm-hmm. exist separately. And so MLB like saying we consider this league to have been major now, I think that was a big deal in a lot of yeah. ways, but but also it's not that we need MLB to do everything subsequently or that like if MLB doesn't do it, then there can't be progress or anything. Because right. in a lot of ways like MLB has been sort of usurped or outstripped when it comes to like access to stats. I mean, again, like I go to Baseball Savant for for the stats that I can only get from MLB, but for for everything else, I I go to some other site, some third party, and obviously, like all the researchers and the historians and everything, they're not at MLB, so they don't necessarily need to to spearhead the. I guess the entire process, I I think it was important for them to make that gesture finally. But beyond that, you know, the fact that they are dragging their heels a little bit doesn't mean that a lot of good hasn't come out of it and and can't continue to come of it. Well, and I think that you're, you know, you're right to point to sort of the, the range of reactions to their initial announcement that there isn't necessarily consensus, even within the community of researchers and and family members of former players in terms of what MLB's role ought to be in, you know, acknowledging the Negro Leagues and ameliorating some of the harm that has been done. Some people are going to be more bothered by um, MLB's sort of slow action here than others because a lot of people are going to say, well, it's not their, you know, they're not the keepers of this. Yeah. This isn't theirs to to further validate, right? Mm-hmm. Um right. So I, you know, I, I think that you're right that that piece is true. And I think you're right that their acknowledgement is, um, at, at the very least, I think generates further attention to these efforts and helps to, you know, raise money for the museum and inspire further researchers to sort of devote themselves to, to the effort to fill in what gaps remain in the record and there are gaps that still remain, right? But mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, um, and if, if anything, it would be nice, I guess, if MLB would devote some money to that cause. Right. I don't, I don't know if it has. I'm not aware that it has. And I guess Retrosheet is an independent organization and I don't know that it would want to be funded by, by MLB anyway in that yeah. effort. But it is, I guess, sort of strange that like – this painstaking process of digging up box scores and compiling everything. And Retrosheet has like f- f- three or four researchers working on that as well as sort of 
the head of RetroSheet who's uh, kind of consolidating it all. Like it's a, a very small grassroots sort of process, right? That if there were more people involved, perhaps it, it could go faster. So it's, I guess, sort of strange that you have this this giant business that's like waiting for this kind of crowdfunding effort, you know, to, to complete its work in order to integrate those stats, which MLB will then use without having to license them or anything. Right, right. Yeah. All right. Last thing, we didn't talk about this. Maybe we can just do sort of a, a quick snap judgment version. Are you more concerned or less concerned about baseball betting gambling scandals because of the Alabama baseball story than you were <laughs> before? <laughs> so as, as people may not know, probably they know, but but the head coach of, of Alabama was fired because we don't have all the details yet, but we know that a starter was scratched, like the ace of the team couldn't start. There's no suggestion that uh, there was anything nefarious about that, like he legitimately couldn't start as far as we know, but he was replaced and the Alabama baseball coach, who of course I imagine was the first to know about that, tipped off someone who placed a bet on LSU, Alabama's opponent, or multiple bets. And so therefore, that better who was placing that bet at Great American Ballpark, by the way, yeah. at the sports book there, was apparently in contact with Brad Bohannon, the Alabama baseball coach at the time. We still don't know, I, th I think, whether Bohannon was directing him to make that bet whether he was just passing the information along so that this other person could benefit. I assume he was aware that the bet was being, you know, he was fired. Like, I assume he knew that, that the bet was being placed and that it was not just like he casually mentioned this in conversation to someone and he happened to run and place a bet while Bohannon was on the phone. Like, there's something untoward about the situation. Yeah. We don't know whether Bohannon was going to directly profit from this or not, but obviously not a great situation. So he was fired. I guess the the positive spin on this is that it was detected, right? It, it was right. caught and he was punished and there is some mechanism in place. And in our preview pod, our bold predictions pod, I suggested that there might be some match fixing scandal in the minor leagues just because players don't make a lot of money and maybe the payoff would be good. Now, this is not a match-fixing scandal, as far as we know, but right. and no players were involved, as far as we know, in this right. particular scandal either. But there is some mechanism in place where if it's college baseball, which does not draw a lot of gambling action generally, and so it raised red flags when a big, <laughs> sizable bet was placed on this Alabama-LSU oh, game, they were boy. like, huh. How about that? <laughs> like, How about that? Yeah. So you could say Joe Sheehan has made the argument that this is sort of the system working. Like it, it there's a fail safe. Like it, it raised the alarm. You know, it, it triggered a response, and and people said, "Huh, this looks fishy. This looks suspicious." And then they looked into it, and then they caught the the perpetrators. So you could say, "Okay, there are some guardrails here." You could also say. It's just there's so much gambling. There's so much sports betting. It's inevitable that there are going to be stories like this that are not detected. And maybe this is just the tip of the iceberg, right? The way you phrased your initial question is so – it allows me so much latitude, Ben. <laughs> because am I more concerned? No. 
but I was already pretty already. concerned. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> my, my, my threat level was high. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just think that the, the incentives for it are pretty obvious. Now you're right that um, there clearly were mechanisms in place to, in this instance, detect it. But I think that when you're talking about, you know, I don't know how much betting there is on minor league stuff. It's just every... Mm-hmm. Yeah, not a ton. Not yeah. a ton. So maybe in the minors, it's, uh, you know, maybe that's fine because mm-hmm. there would be, somebody would be going, hey, now, excuse mm-hmm. you. Um, mm-hmm. But also, I, I'm I'm pretty concerned. It just seems like there, there are so many games. There are so mm-hmm. many guys. And there is so much money at stake. Someone's going to try it and try to do it in a way that is smarter than this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Not, you know, like yeah, this wasn't a sophisticated Rose's, operation, no, as it turns out. No, not even Pete Rose's, I think, confirmed to have placed bets against his team, also, right. which is like if that's right. what Bohannon was doing. Geez. Yeah. And and there are already there were lawsuits against this guy, Bohannon, for like treatment of players and injury recovery and that sort right. of thing. So Again, like maybe maybe he's just uh, not the exemplar of, of fine right. college coaching. But there's also been another wagering sort of scandal involving Iowa State and 41 athletes there. I, I think including some ten, members of their baseball team. Yes, right. And according to reports, also not a point shaving or match fixing or, yeah. or game outcome related sort of situation. So probably just some sort of uh, betting that that. They should not have done <laughs> potential criminal conduct related to sports wagering, whatever that means. But whatever that means. Yeah. So in theory, none of these calls into question the integrity of the games, which is, I guess, the greatest concern when it comes to sports leagues themselves. And again, it was detected. And that's a good thing, I guess, mm-hmm. that at this level where one would think the incentives are greater to do things like this. And and certainly players in tennis and, and all sorts of other sports have been caught doing these things. Right. But also maybe it's more obvious if you do try to profit from that, just because there's not usually much action on those games. So I don't know. I was already somewhat concerned too. I yeah. guess what you could say is that there's going to be this temptation, like, okay, maybe this pitcher was actually hurt and Bohannon wasn't actually doing anything to influence games, but like you could, right? Like it it doesn't seem like a great leap to be like, actually, I'm going to switch my starter assignments for another reason, which is just that I will be the first to know and therefore I can play some bet, right? Like maybe there's some pretense that's uh, not as legitimate as this injury was. And you could just make that swap and you would know and in theory be able to profit from it if you could get away with it. And just, I guess, I always just sort of assume like anytime there's some sort of nefarious activity, like what we know is probably not the half of it. So There are just so many avenues to feel like you have some influence. Now, like, I don't know. I don't know enough about like the expectations of, of gamblers here because like changing a starter potentially very impactful, right? Mm-hmm. Some of the other small things that one could do to try to sway the game. Who, uh, what is the efficacy of those moves? I don't, yeah. I don't know, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what what's betting? Ben, like, what do people do when they're betting about stuff? Like, what are they what are they betting? What are they? You know, what are their what are their goals? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do they want to happen? Yes. I just, I, you know, I know I will not be able to maintain 
this level of ignorance, which is a, an act of protest on my part uh, mm -hmm. for all that much longer, but I'm going to hold on as long as I can. So I don't actually want answers to any of these questions, but yeah. um, there are just so many moving pieces um, and so many decisions, many of which are going to be defensible from a lot of different angles that it seems likely that there might be something shifty that goes on. And, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be shifty to your point. You just have to know first, mm -hmm. you just have to, it can be legitimate and you just know, early because you're the guy doing the mm -hmm. thing you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we yeah. were just like open that can of worms what's the worst thing that could be inside there you know mm -hmm. yep. i think a lot of bad stuff more <laughs> worse than worms so many moral quandaries Wor on this episode that cool i like yeah we, yeah we worms, worms are like are they do all, yeah they do all kinds of great so mm -hmm. worms get a bad rep, I think, is actually what I'm mm -hmm. really want people to take away from yeah. today. It's like be nicer to worms. Yeah, you know, they do all kinds of great stuff. <laughs> they're not slugs. You know mm -hmm. what? Screw slugs. <laughs> Comfortable <laughs> okay. with that too. <laughs> all We're right. gonna get emails about that. Someone's gonna be like, actually, yeah, slugs I, have I, important ecological yes, benefit. And then I I'm gonna be excited do, yeah. to I'm so, gonna be excited to have learned that. Slugs and snails, I, I think, yeah, they have they serve their purpose in the great tapestry too. Anyway. Yeah, like eating my plants. <laughs> well, in an episode that started with uh, Akil Badu getting hit in the beans, we we waded into some <laughs> weighty waters in this one, but we, we we ranged far afield. We went all over the world in this episode. So we're not just a, a major league baseball podcast, we're a baseball podcast. Yeah. It's a it's a rich tapestry and some mm -hmm. parts of it uh, are very exciting and bright and sunny mm -hmm. and other parts require um i think rather urgent attention so. mm -hmm. well here's something else that requires urgent attention drew rasmussen's flexor tendon tampa bay rays number two starter placed on the il with a flexor strain slash forearm strain aren't you glad we just prepared you for that on our last episode by explaining flexor slash forearm strains or if you're a race fan maybe you're not so glad because you know it's worrisome. Then again, if you're a race fan, you're probably already pretty familiar with the anatomy of the elbow. Shane Boz had Tommy John surgery. Jeffrey Springs had Tommy John surgery. Andrew Kittredge had Tommy John surgery. Those are just the guys who are currently recovering from it. Given how unstoppable the Rays have seemed this season, it's almost shocking how hurt they are. Between Boz and Springs and now Rasmussen and Tyler Glass now, they have almost an entire rotation on the IL and injured relievers too, and that's how you end up with Jake Diekman and Zach Littell. Their depth chart on roster resource has three starting pitchers listed. And I know it's the Rays and how do you define a starting pitcher on the Rays anyway, but man, tough to think of other teams that have seemed so dominant and simultaneously so vulnerable. We talked last time about the causes of all of this and max effort velocity contributing to injuries. Got a great email from Patreon supporter Runrin who pointed me to the example of Met starter Tyler McGill. We were talking last time about how players put pressure on themselves to throw harder, teams put pressure on them to throw harder, the media, scouts, everyone, fans, everyone wants to see those velocity numbers go up and up. And at the start of last season, Tyler McGill, who was suddenly throwing 99, this Tim Healy Newsday piece said, but no pitcher, once he has thrown 99, wants to stay at 99. I'm throwing 100 this year, McGill said. Always, you want to throw as hard as you can. If you're at 99, why not 100? 
and he had already experienced multiple velocity jumps, much like Jacob deGrom. After smoothing out his mechanics, he said he couldn't help but look at the stadium radar gun on the 99-mile-per-hour pitch. And he said he may have been throwing especially hard in that outing because it was opening day and he was amped up. But once he saw it, he wanted to go even higher, which reminds me very much of Noah Syndergaard, who had the same sort of chasing the velocity monster, always wanted to throw harder, and then he got hurt. And so did Tyler McGill. He was pitching great, and then he had a shoulder injury. But unlike Syndergaard, unlike DeGrom, he decided this spring to take his foot off the gas a little bit to stay healthy. So he's taken it down from 97, 98, more like 93, 94. He said, I've been talking to Max Scherzer. He's had a very long, healthy career. The way he pitches, he saves some in the gas tank when he needs it and is able to stretch it out and go the distance. That's what I'm trying to do. Save my bullets and stay fresh longer. I think he learned a lot last year that more is not always better, Buck Showalter said. Sounds like a great little morality play, but the catch is that he has not actually pitched all that effectively. Is that because he's not throwing as hard? Is it because the injury has hampered him in some other way, I don't know. I wish the outcome of the story was that he took a little off the fastball and continued to excel. Not quite, but I do think Jacob deGrom could, given how hard he throws. I'm going to leave you with the pass blast, which comes to us from 2006 and from David Lewis, who is an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston. David writes, 2006, the Rockies look for high-tech aids for improved performance. Yes, the Rockies, not a misprint. In 2006, the Colorado Rockies experimented with new ways to improve their team performance. One such trial, as reported by the AP in June 2006, was downloading game film to their players' video iPods, allowing them to watch whenever and wherever. Explained Rockies assistant video coordinator Brian Jones, It wasn't like we invented the wheel. We're using Apple's technology as best we can. We figured if you can watch music videos by rock and roll and by country, why can't you watch it bats by San Francisco and pitches by Jason Schmidt? That's the same Brian Jones, by the way, who has since been promoted to be the Rockies Director of Research and Development. As of June 2006, David continues, 14 Rockies players were using the video iPods for game footage, although according to the AP, the players themselves, not the ball club, had to front the $399 cost of the device. Just when the Rockies were really starting to impress me. The team hoped to have players, coaches, and scouts all use iPods to review game footage. Just a few months into the Rockies experiment, the Marlins and Mariners reportedly decided to begin utilizing iPods for their players as well. How well did this work out for the Rockies? In 2006, the team went 76-86, and 86, good for fourth in the NL West. While not fantastic, that showed improvement over 2005 when the team went 67-95, and 95, last in the division. One year later, however, the 2007 Rockies went 90-73 and 73 and made a run to the World series. Perhaps they couldn't have done it without their iPods. Remember, this is not an iPad. This is an iPod with a two and a half inch screen and a resolution of 320 by 240. So who knows how helpful it was. But back in 2006, at least in this respect, the Rockies were on the cutting edge. Other teams were sending players home with DVDs to watch on their laptops. Jones thinks his iPod idea will soon be used across college and professional sports. We're always trying to figure out the easiest way to help our players, he said. In the old days, when you had a VCR, you had to go through so much tape. Now it's so much easier and portable, you don't have to search for two hours to find that one swing on that one day. And he was right. Not necessarily about the iPods, but the principle. If only the Rockies had stayed so progressive when it came to helping their players improve. You can help us by supporting the podcast on Patreon, which you can do by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. 
Falling Five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Justin Dashner, Linus Marco, Tyler Hodges, Chris Jillings, and Eric Peters. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only, as well as access to monthly bonus episodes and playoff live streams and discounts on merch and ad-free Fancrafts memberships. The list goes on and on. Patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. You can message us through the Patreon site if you are a supporter. If not, you can contact us via email at podcastthefancrafts.com. You can also rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend with baseball, or if you're like me, with baseball and The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. We will be back to talk to you early next week. Baseball is a simulation. It's all just one